Well, please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Again, that's the letter of James chapter 1. Trials can produce a tremendous benefit in the life of a Christian. It's through trials that that faith is refined and the Christian's trust in God is strengthened. But uh, this benefit only comes to those who endure. How do we do that? How do we remain steadfast in trials? That's the question we're currently exploring uh, for now our second week in James 1, 9-12. Uh, let's begin by reading this passage in its context, starting in verse 2, continuing through verse 18. Again, the passage, James 1, 9-12, uh, starting in verse 2, though, reading in its context. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits, of his creatures. On December 7, 1988, a powerful 8.9 earthquake rocked the mountains of northwestern Armenia. The results were devastating. Over 130,000 people were injured, upwards of 25,000 people were killed. But out of the devastation of that, that event comes a story that reminds us of the power of hope. Of the many buildings that were leveled in that quake, there was a school. And the quake had hit just before noon while there were still many children inside. Shortly after the quake, parents started to arrive at the school to check on their children. And as they viewed the rubble, they began to cry out in grief as they realized what had happened to their little ones. One father, though, didn't cry out in sorrow. Instead, he started to frantically dig through the rubble. At first, he did it alone. No one seemed to see any use in even making an attempt at a rescue and the situation was so obviously hopeless. This father, though, he had made his son a promise that he'd never leave him. He said, no matter what, I'll always be there for you. And so he kept digging by himself, removing stone after stone from the rubble. That was his son's classroom. As he dug, some of the parents tried to stop him. It's too late, they said. There's nothing you can do for your son now. He's already gone. Eventually, the local fire chief showed up. He warned the father that he was in danger. Fires were breaking out in the aftermath of this quake. There were explosions taking place nearby. He needed to leave if he was going to be safe. The fire department would handle the recovery effort, the rescue effort. The father simply answered, Are you going to help me now? And kept digging. 
The police then came and told the father he was putting others in danger. They ordered him to leave. Again, the father answered, Are you going to help me now? And so it continued. Afternoon turned into evening, evening to morning, and morning to afternoon once again. For over 36 hours, the father continued digging, strengthened by the hope that maybe his son was still alive. And for over 36 hours, he continued to dig alone with no one to help him. And then finally, in the 38th hour, it happened. He pulled back one more boulder, and he heard a child's voice. Believing it might be his son's voice, his his father called out his name, Armand, he cried, and then came back. Dad, it's me, Dad. He said, I told the other kids not to worry. I told them if you were alive, you'd save me, and when you saved me, they'd be saved. You promised no matter what, I'll always be there for you. You did it, Dad. People can do remarkable things. They can overcome incredible obstacles when they have hope. That's what we see in this story. It's the father's hope that drives him to dig and fight for his child's survival instead of giving up. That's the power of hope. A soldier can endure hunger and fatigue and the horrors of war so long as they have the hope of one day returning home to see their family. A mother can endure hours of physical agony for the hope of holding her newborn child. A cancer patient can endure months of chemotherapy, months of of nausea and sickness, all for the hope of a cure. Hope drives people to push through pain and endure and overcome severe obstacles, and it's no different for the Christian suffering through trials. As bad as the trial may be, they can persevere so long as they have hope. For the past several weeks, we've been studying James 1, uh, 2-18. And in this passage, James is, is teaching us about trials. He's explained to us the benefit of trials in verses 2-4. through 4. James says that when the Christian remains steadfast in trials, this steadfastness makes them, quote, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In short, trials sanctify the Christian, both as the Christian learns how to obey God in suffering and as their faith in God is strengthened through the trial. In other words, the Christian's relationship with God is deepened through trials, and and through this relationship comes an abundant and an abiding joy. It's a blessing. Righteousness is a blessing, and God blesses His children with this gift by walking them through affliction. That's the first lesson that James has taught us, the blessing of trials, why we should count it all joy when we encounter various trials. And then in verses 5 to 8, he taught us how to gain the wisdom that we need to persevere through trials. Uh, trials present their own kind of challenges. Not only do they sometimes shake our faith as we question why God would ever allow us to endure such suffering, but very often it's hard even to know what kind of response glorify God, glorifies God in the affliction. Righteousness is, is not our default setting. Our minds have been darkened by sin such that when righteousness is described to us, very often it looks backwards. It's, it's counterintuitive. This means that we often need to be instructed in the right response when trial comes so that we can persevere in it. James says when you face one of those types of challenges, you need to go to the source of wisdom, and that's God. God is eager to bless His children, and so he's, he's more than ready to give us the wisdom that we need to draw closer to Him in suffering. He'll show us what to do. He'll show us how to honor Him if we only seek Him. So ask God, James says. But, he explains, you have to ask without doubting. 
without hesitation. There can't be this this vacillation between wishing to serve God and wishing to serve idols. That person, he explains, won't receive anything from God. He's he's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. The idea is that any wisdom that God would have to offer the Christian in the trial will prove useless because of their inability to receive that wisdom in their doubt. They have a kind of double vision that's going to blur their understanding of the truth. And so James says, God will give the Christian what they need, but they need to come and ask him, uncommitted to any sort of competing desire. Now the question we're exploring is how? We've seen the benefit of trials. We've seen what we need to do when we lack the wisdom that we need to honor God in trials. Now the question we're asking is, how does the Christian remain steadfast? Where do they find the strength to persevere? In our last message, we saw that, that uh, hope is key in this equation. Just like with the soldier or the mom in labor or the cancer patient, it's hope that pushes the Christian to endure trials with faithfulness. But this isn't just any hope that pushes the Christian. It's the hope of heaven that drives them. This comes out in verse 12. When James summarizes the first part of this section about trials by saying, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. In this verse, James is encouraging us to heed his counsel. He's telling us that the one who perseveres like in the trials that he's just spoken about, he says this person is blessed. And he explains that the reason why isn't simply because of what they'll receive in this life, but because of what they'll receive in the next. He pushes our eyes up to heaven and he tells us to remember what we'll receive once everything is said and done. This idea is so important. It's so important to understand this. Where the hope is to lie. Because you see, sometimes the trials that we endure here, they're perpetual. Some may even be terminal, meaning they won't ever go away. The Christian with the unbelieving or disobedient spouse, there's no guarantee they're ever going to repent. The stage 4 cancer patient, apart from a miracle from the Lord, they're probably not going to get better. So where do we find hope when we encounter those kinds of trials? It's not going to be by fixing our hope in this life. Again, that's not to say that God may not grant you some kind of relief. He might. But if He doesn't, how are you going to keep enduring? How are you going to keep persevering then? And the the answer comes from fixing your hope in heaven. This is the key to perseverance. When your hope is fixed on the next life, when the thing you desire is set there, then the trials that take place here can't really shake you because they're not threatening anything that you feel you need to protect. In our last message, we saw that's how Jesus operated. That's how Paul operated. That's how essentially every Old Testament saint operated. They they didn't hold their earthly lives dear because they believed they had a better inheritance awaiting them in heaven. That's why they obeyed with such reckless abandon. Now, this isn't to say that when you have your hope fixed in heaven, trials won't hurt. They will. It's not like there still won't be sorrow, for instance. When the mother of two learns she has stage four cancer, there's going to be sorrow. There's going to be pain then, as there should be. We should ache over the curse. 
has been inflicted upon us. It's not supposed to feel good. It's not the way things are ultimately meant to be. That being said, though, as much as we can weep over the pain that afflictions bring, we do not weep as those without hope, right? Because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross, sin, death, the curse, these things aren't going to have the final say. Jesus has satisfied God's wrath. He's conquered the grave. So death will die. Sin will be completely destroyed. This world, it will be made new. So as much as the trials hurt, and they will hurt, they still cannot really take anything from us. They can temporarily but not permanently. At the end of the day, Jesus will have the final say, and He will wipe away every tear from our eye. There will never again be any more sorrow or pain. And that gives us hope to endure the trial, to remain faithful. We don't have to sin to find joy and rest. We just have to be patient. We just have to wait. And in time, Jesus is going to bring it to us. This is the good news we've received. So, when we set our mind on heaven, we find strength to persevere. That's why James is encouraging us with the crown of life in verse 12. That's the prize he wants us to set our eyes on so we can run with endurance the race that's set before us. Now, in verses 9 through 11, he identifies two threats to this hope. I know I'm going a little bit backwards here, but but in verses 2 to 4, he exhorts us to persevere in trials. In verses 5 to 8, he tells us how to gain the wisdom we need to respond in righteousness to trials. Now, as he gets to verses 9 to 11, as, as he builds up to this encouragement that comes in verse 12, he briefly identifies two threats to this heavenly hope. In verses 5 to 8, remember, he says that we need to be undistracted in our devotion to Christ, if we want to receive the, the, the wisdom that God has to offer. Well, as he concludes that thought, he frames this future hope in light of two different threats which can distract us from this wholehearted devo- uh, devotion to Christ. And James commands us to view these threats from a heavenly perspective. That's how we're going to keep them from pulling our attention away from Christ. It's by seeing these threats in light of our eternal reward. The first threat occurs in verse 9. And that's earthly poverty. Earthly poverty. That's a threat I want us to explore this morning. Earthly poverty. James tells us to frame our earthly poverty in light of our future reward in heaven. Addressing the poor, he says, verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. In this verse, James addresses, in the Greek, ha adelphos hai tapenos, the lowly brother. That word tapenos, which is translated as lowly, it can take on a couple of different meanings depending on the context. It can be translated as low or humble or unimportant. That's the, the tack that the ESV takes when it's used in this sense. It, it's more or, or less a, a reference to a person's social status. For example, the children in Matthew 18, who the disciples try to turn away, they would qualify as lowly in this sense. In fact, when Jesus tells the disciples in that context, He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The word He uses for humbles is the verb form of this word, taipanos. 
That's not a reference to economic status or anything like that, right? Jesus isn't saying that the disciples have to become financially poor to be great in the kingdom. He's telling them that they need to regard themselves with the same sort of esteem that they attached to these little children. That is to say, they needed to see themselves as low, as unimportant, as needy and dependent, as unworthy. So again, that's one way to translate this word. It's, it's a reference to the brother's status in society. However, this word can also be translated simply as poor. As in someone who lives in poverty. Someone who lacks money. And I think you can see the overlap there, right? After all, the poor are often regarded as unimportant in our society. I mean... You know, politicians generally don't make room in their schedules to meet with a poor constituent, uh, but they'll drop everything to have lunch with a wealthy donor. Uh, you're standing in line at the airport, and who boards first? Who gets the special treatment from the airline? It's the people sitting in first class, right? The wealthy are the ones that tend to get all the attention, and that's not because they're necessarily better than other people or something like that. It's just because people want their money, right? And we see it all the time. People trip all over themselves to keep someone happy if... They think that they can get a hold of some of that money. The the rich are often held to a different standard, even in our own courts of law, because people are enamored with money. Unfortunately, this happens even in the church. The rich sometimes will get special treatment. James is going to address this at the beginning of chapter 2. And that's where this overlap in terms comes from. The poor often don't get that kind of special treatment. Instead, they're immediately tossed aside and ignored. They're unimportant. Lowly. Well, given what's going to come up in verses 10 through 11, where James speaks about the actual rich, it would seem that it's probably best to see this word in verse 9 as a reference not just to the lowly, but to those who are actually poor. So James isn't addressing just anyone who regards themselves as unimportant in verse 9. He's addressing those living in literal poverty. And the reason this matters is because of the context. The context here is trials. Uh, That's why I started in verse 12 last week instead of going straight to verses 9 to 11. I wanted you to see that verse 12 is the bookend to what James started in verse 2. So when James starts speaking about the rich and the poor in verses 9 through 11, the subject hasn't changed. He's still talking about trials. Oh Well, once again, going back to verse 1, where, where James talks about the twelve tribes and the dispersion, it seems that James is addressing Jewish Christians who have been scattered, scattered abroad, probably by the persecution that Luke describes for us in Acts. Several of these brothers, it would seem, are struggling with poverty. That may be a poverty that was brought on by the persecution they're going through as they were forced to leave their homes and their sources of income. Or maybe a poverty that they brought with them, something that they possessed before They were scattered. It's not entirely clear. Regardless, though, these are brothers who are struggling with poverty in the midst of these trials. And poverty, of course, can be its own kind of trial. If you've ever struggled to pay your electric bill, I think you probably know what I'm talking about. Emily and I, you know, we both came from upper middle class families, and and there have been times in our marriage when we've really struggled to make ends meet. I mean, we weren't experiencing you know, really extreme poverty by any means. I don't want to get overly dramatic here, but it was still enough that we were you know, using government assistance to buy food, okay? And, and that was certainly a new experience for us. And I have to say, the thing that dawned on me at that time was 
Oh, so this is why the poor tend to struggle with drug and alcohol abuse. It never made sense to me before why someone with no money would spend what little they had on something so destructive. Once I started to walk in their shoes for just a little bit, though, it started to make sense. When you're struggling with money, things can look so hopeless that you just want some kind of escape, even if it's temporary. So again, poverty by itself can be its own kind of trial. It can be very hard to faithfully endure the pressure brought on by financial hardship. Well, James readers are struggling with poverty while undergoing additional trials. So like the the poor individual who suddenly loses a spouse or the poor individual who gets in a car accident and is seriously injured and has to go on disability, that's what's happening to these Christians. They're experiencing poverty on top of their trials. What's the temptation in that situation? Well, it's to say, if I just had some money, I could fix all this. If I just had a little more income, maybe a nice nest egg to fall back on, then I could make the pain go away. The temptation is to look to money for hope, to look to money for deliverance rather than God. Emily and I found ourselves doing this when we were short on cash. Some people, you know, they think the poor don't struggle with the love of money in the same way that the rich do. The people who think that have never been poor before. Listen, I can tell you from personal experience, I never struggled with a love for money until I didn't have it. When I had much, I was satisfied. I wasn't greedy. I didn't feel like I wanted more, needed more. But once my comfortable lifestyle was taken away, all of a sudden I became focused on money and how it could fix all my hurts. You see, there's a reason why the vast majority of people who buy lottery tickets are poor. It's not because their greed drove them to buy lottery tickets and made them poor. No, it's because they were already poor and they're desperate for a way out. Their hope is in money. That's the danger of earthly poverty. As the pain of a particular trial increases and you experience the want of some good thing, it can make you want to seek relief in what you lack rather than learn the wisdom that God means to teach you in the trial. It's kind of like if you're trying to get into the habit of going to the gym. You know, a couple weeks ago I said that you know, tomorrow we'll hit New Year's and there will be all these people with New Year's resolutions to get into shape. And, and most of them are going to fail by the second week in February. And I said that a lot of the reason why they fail is because they don't have a hope that pushes them through the discomfort that it takes to get them into shape. Well, the, the physical discomfort of getting into shape isn't the only obstacle that they're going to face in their quest, right? There are also going to be days when there's disruptions to their schedule. There are going to be days when maybe they're sick or something like that. And if you've ever gone through that, what do we tend to do in that situation? I'll tell you what, I'll, what I tend to do. I'll tell myself, well, you know, if I had more time in my schedule, then I'd go. And then I don't go. Or I'll say to myself, you know, kind of, kind of sniffle a couple times. I'll say, you know, I'm kind of feeling sniffly today. I better wait until I start feeling better. Rest up. Then I'll go. Okay? Go tomorrow. Well, it's the same way in trials. As we're facing the, the trials in front of us, trying to endure the pain, we can start to think that the reason we're not able to endure is because of some good thing that we lack. 
And when we embrace that kind of thinking, we tend not to endure and learn the lessons that God means to teach us through trials. And and just to be clear here, I don't think this applies only to money. That's the problem that James readers are facing in their trial. They want financial provision. And so that's how he frames this particular exhortation. But I think you could say the same of any good thing that you lack. And money, by the way, is a good thing when it's used properly. It's a blessing. Well, in the same way, the lack of any other good thing can produce this kind of distorted thinking as well. You see it all the time with young men, for instance. They're experiencing intense physical desires that come as they enter into manhood. And what they tell themselves is, if I only had a wife, then this trial would be solved. Well, the problem with this sort of thinking is that it sets the young man's hopes on a wife. He thinks that's the problem, his lack of a wife. And so he doesn't deal with his sin. God is meaning to make him holy through what he lacks. He's meaning to teach the young man how to submit his flesh to the will of God and master the desires of his body through faith. But this man isn't having any of it. All he can think of is, I need a wife, I need a wife, I need a wife. So he doesn't grow. Because he set his hope on what he lacks, he's unable to learn a lesson that strengthens his faith and teaches him to endure. The same thing can occur with a wife, for instance, who's waiting on her husband to kick it in gear and become a spiritual leader in the home. Again, a a godly husband can be a good thing. But some women will almost blame their spiritual growth on the lack of a godly husband. Again, they're wrestling through some trial and their sin is being exposed and they'll say to themselves, if my husband would just get his act together, then I'd be able to get through this. And so they wait on their husband's repentance rather than learn the lesson that's meant to be learned in the suffering. The lack of any good thing can cause this kind of distraction. So how does James address this? How does he deal with this? He tells us to frame our poverty in light of eternity. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The word for boast here isn't like bragging. It's more the idea of take confidence in. Like it says in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. It says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfastness, love, uh, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is saying, don't trust in your wisdom or your might or your riches. Trust in God alone. That's James' point here as well. The lowly brother is to boast. He's to take confidence in, set his hope on his future exaltation. Contextually, given what we're about to encounter in verses 10 and 11, given what James says in verse 12 about the crown of life, contextually, that exaltation is heaven. You see, the issue here, once again, is poverty. And scripturally, there's going to be a kind of reversal that takes place at the end, where the low are lifted up and the high and the mighty are brought low. The poor will be filled up and the rich will be stripped bare. I'm going to dig into more into why it works this way as we get down into verses 10 and 11 next week. But you find this idea all over the scripture. Probably the most famous example of this is the rich man and Lazarus. 
The rich man dies, and, and you'll recall that as he's languishing in Hades, he sees Lazarus at Abraham's side, and so he calls out to Abraham and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. And what does Abraham say? He says, Child, remember that in your lifetime, that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, received uh, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. That's Abraham's explanation for their condition. Lazarus had nothing, and he had much. And now their situations have been reversed. Again, we'll get into why this is so uh, next week. Point is, there's this reversal that takes place at the end where the poor are lifted up and the rich are laid low. So that's one example. But again, we see this idea all over the Scripture. The Beatitudes, for instance, are basically one long list describing this kind of dramatic reversal. Jesus says that the poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven, that the one who mourns will be comforted, that the meek, the humble, right, are going to rule, that the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness are going to be satisfied. In other places, he speaks of the one who loses their life as the one who gains it, whereas those who try to save their life are going to lose it. And I could go on. Psalm 49, Psalm 73, Isaiah 40, it's everywhere. In fact, Mary even indicates that this this grand reversal is actually at the core of the gospel's good news. When when Gabriel tells her that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, she praises God saying this. This is Luke 1, 46-55. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. She says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and His offspring forever. So again, this idea is everywhere. You see it all over the place. And what James is saying is that the Christian who's suffering want... He says they need to fix their eyes on this future reversal when God is going to supply their needs. Now, I want you to note here, James doesn't just say, learn to do without. He doesn't say, suck it up and deal with it to the poor. Unfortunately, that's the counsel that a lot of Christians will give people who are suffering. They'll say, well, you know, the problem is that you're just thinking of your needs, and you need to start glorifying God instead as if we're not creatures who, by definition, need things. Listen, guys, we're not Stoics, okay? We're not Buddhists or something like that who try to insist that pain is just an illusion, and if we just get ourselves to think rightly, then we can rise above our physical concerns. Scripture doesn't talk this way as if we don't have needs. It acknowledges that we have needs. It's just that it tells us, number one, that we're to seek God for those things, and number two, we're not to value the vehicle of blessing more than the giver. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, right? That's what the Scripture tells us about needs. It's just like what Jesus tells Martha. She frets about the house. You know, he says, Martha, Martha, you're, so you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. 
Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. It's okay to recognize that as a creature you need to have life given to you. That's right, actually, to recognize that. It's true. It's accurate. It's nothing but sheer arrogance to pretend otherwise. However, that doesn't mean that you need to sin to get a slice of bread because it's not the bread that's the source of your life, right? It's God. So you obey Him, and you obey Him actually in recognition of your need, that He's the source of life. This is what glorifies God, by the way. It's not when we act as if we don't have any needs, as if we're mini-gods or something like that. No, it's when we acknowledge that we need Him. And then we give Him thanks for the things that He supplies. Again, a lot of Christians give terrible advice to people who are suffering by telling them, well, you just need to stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about God as if somehow those ideas are intrinsically opposed to one another. Jesus certainly doesn't talk that way. And he encourages his disciples all the time with the idea of reward. He's counting on the fact that we want to be happy, and he doesn't discourage it. He just redirects our desire onto the right object. And that's what James does here as well. He doesn't say ignore the desire, not when it's a good one. Instead, he says, fix your eyes on the time when what you lack will be filled up. He directs the Christian to heaven. Overall, the idea is that, yes, we we may suffer want now, but only for a little while. It's only a very temporary kind of lack. And that's not to say that if we're faithful, then God will give us what we want. Again, the purpose of trials is to direct our joy to God, so we shouldn't expect that there's just some kind of delayed gratification with our idols. Like I said, some of the trials we endure, they're going to last the rest of our lives. We'll never get relief this side of heaven. There are, there are young men, for instance, who will never get married, even though they want to. There are wives whose husbands will never repent. Nor is this to say that, that even when we get to heaven, all of our desires will be fulfilled just the way we want them to be fulfilled here on earth. Again, take marriage, for instance. Jesus says that marriage won't occur in heaven. The relationships we enjoy here are very temporary. So the young man who's never married in this life will never get to have that experience. So God may never supply us with the exact thing we lack right now, but that doesn't mean we won't still be exalted in some way. That's not to say that we won't have that want dealt with in some way. Again, taking this example with the young man who wants to be married, it very well may be that he'll never get to experience marriage, either in this life or the next. But that being said, that's not to say he won't be happy in eternity. Because when he receives a resurrection body, the broken desires that his flesh will be resolved and singleness isn't going to be a burden anymore. So there is a kind of coming exaltation, a moment when that want will be dealt with and satisfied, even if it's not in the ways that we anticipate. Here James says, look to that day. Look to the day when your suffering will be ended. Set your hope there. The idea is that yes... Yes, you may have to go without. But it's only going to be for a very short time. So fix your hope on the relief that God is going to give you then. Look to the rest that He's going to give you at the end. And use that hope to push through the trials that you have to endure right now. And learn the lessons that God wants you to learn. 
Again, he means to bless you through the suffering by teaching you how to depend on him. So don't allow yourself to be distracted by the things you don't have. Don't let that become an excuse for why you're unfaithful. Instead, ask yourself, why does God want me to go without that thing right now? What does he want to teach me about his sufficiency? In verses 10 through 11, James is going to get into the second threat to our heavenly hope. And there's a lot to say about this one. In fact, we'll see that, that James devotes a lot more words to this second kind of threat. And I venture to say that's because of the two threats. The second one is the more dangerous of the two. So I don't want to jump into this right now. The, the second threat is a major threat. Probably for most of us, I'd assume, it, of the two here, it's probably the one that we're more likely to encounter and wrestle with. So I want to take time to camp out there. In the meantime, I want you to ask yourself, what do I think I need? What am I lacking that I think I need to be faithful to God? It's very easy to think that the reason why we can't endure trials is because God isn't giving us what we need to remain faithful. And we'll see in a couple of weeks, James warns us against that kind of thinking in the very next passage. He's going to tell us, don't ever, ever think that the reason you fail in trials is because God is making you stumble. It doesn't work like that. You can't blame God for your sin. Paul makes a similar statement when he tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you, will, uh, that you may be able to endure it. God supplies us with everything that we need to be faithful. So we can't blame God on our sin, but we still try, right? It's just like the person saying, you know, I can't go to the gym today. I'm too sick. There are too many things going on in my life right now. They'll tell themselves that so they don't have to endure the pain that will help them achieve their goal. We'll do the same thing with our obedience. We'll say that God just isn't supplying us with what we need to be faithful to endure trials. So what's your excuse? What do you think you need? I'm going to admit something to you that's a little embarrassing. (laughs) But I'm going to do it anyways because I want to give you a clear picture, I think, of how this sort of thing works. Uh, It seems a lot of times like God starts putting uh, me through the ringer on things that I'm about to preach on so that by the time I I finally get to the passage, I have a good feel about how to apply the things I'm going to say to you, uh, the things that we're finding in these passages. Uh, Either that or I'm paying closer attention to the things that I'm about to preach on. I'm I'm not really sure how that works. Anyways, uh, I've needed to be in James. Lately, uh, this book has been ministering to me, and the reason is because lately I've been dealing with some anxiety. There's been some pressure in my life, and it's been bringing my sin up to the surface. Uh, what's odd is that I'm not entirely sure what's prompting a good portion of this anxiety, uh, because a lot of it has to do with my physical health. Now, objectively, I'm, I'm a pretty healthy individual, but lately I've, I've been turning into a bit of a hypochondriac or something like that. Again, I don't know where it's coming from because there's not a whole lot I can tell externally to, to prompt it is going on in my life, at least nothing major. So I'm not sure if it's just the fact that I'm starting to reach middle age or if it's my family history playing into my mind or what, but I'll get like paranoid 
I have cancer or something like that. You guys, I don't know if anyone else has that. I get that, though. And it's silly, I know, but in my mind, there are moments where it can actually be pretty debilitating. I'll basically convince myself, just, just completely made up, but in my mind, I'm convinced that I've got something serious, and I'll start worrying that the most minor aches and pains are signs of something more serious. Anyways, I've had this going on for a couple months now, actually. And I've had this, these sort of episodes happen before, and I know that they eventually shake free after a while, but I've got to tell you, I hate this when it's happening. When I'm in the midst of one of these episodes, there's this fear that's constantly looming in the back of my mind, and it's really hard to get rid of. Again, I don't always know where it came from, so I have a hard time getting rid of it. Well, there are times I, I say to myself, why is God making me go through this? And I'll even say to myself, I'll say, why is he putting this fear in me? Only James tells me that that's not where the anxiety is coming from. It's not that it's something that God is putting in me. It's something that he's revealing through some pressure that I just still can't figure out where that pressure is coming from. But you know what's happened in this, this latest episode as we've gone through James? Number one, I've been reminded that I need to be thankful that God is bringing this into light. All I want in the moment is for the pain to go away. I want the discomfort to be removed. And what James is reminding me is that the way that's supposed to happen is by having my anxiety put to death, not by having whatever stimuli that's provoking it taken away. And then number two, I've been shown that the way to deal with this anxiety is by fixing my hope on heaven. That's especially true of this particular sin. I, I find myself anxious over my physical health. And you know what my first thought is? I'll think to myself, I wish there was some way I could know that I was healthy. And can you see what I'm doing right there? I'm doing exactly the kind of thing that James is telling us not to do in this morning's passage. I'm fixing my hope on my physical health, not on heaven. The thoughts that I'm trying to put on are thoughts like, it's, you know, it's probably nothing. People feel these kinds of aches all the time. And that's not the thought that I'm supposed to be putting on. Do you know what the thoughts I'm supposed to put on are? It's thoughts like this. It's thoughts like, so what if it is cancer? What am I afraid of? There's a great and glorious future lying ahead of me. To, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I have a hard time thinking that way a lot of time. And this is being exposed in my anxiety. My comfort has come from my good health and not from my salvation. I heard someone say not too long ago, they said, you know, uh, by the best estimates, this was, this was, they were referring to themselves, they said, you know, by the best estimates, I only have about 60% of my life left. And what's scary is that when my cell phone is 60% charged, I think it's almost dead. <laughs> and that's what starts running through my mind when I start thinking about my health. And you know what that reveals? It reveals that I'm not longing for heaven. It reveals that my hope is set here. If I were thinking from a heavenly perspective, if I were thinking according to the wisdom that's from above, do you know how I look at it? I wouldn't say, you know, I only have half of my life left. I'd say, I only have half of my life left to go. I wouldn't be looking at my physical deterioration as the, from, with a glass half empty sort of mindset. I'd be looking at it with the glass half full because of Christ. I already have a huge lead, right? The victory is in hand. Now I'm just running down the clock. 
until the celebration begins. And, and yes, I know there's still work to be done still. I'm not saying that there's not. I'm just saying that I'd be eager for the game to end. Not anxious about it. It turns out, turns out this trial has been very necessary. Because it's been showing me my sin and it's been teaching me how to develop a better and more enduring hope. Like I've needed to have this pressure brought into my life because the end result is going to be a sincere contentedness with my mortality. I mean, by this point, I can see where it's going, and it's going to mean that I'm going to be okay with getting old, that there will actually be increased expectation as I age, not concerned with whether or not I've wasted my life or something like that. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a blessing. James says trials are a blessing because they teach us righteousness, and righteousness is wisdom, and it turns out that's exactly how it works. Kind of funny how that works. It's almost like the Scripture's true or something like that. So once again, my question for you is, what do you think you need? What's your excuse? Again, for me lately, it's been the thought of a clean bill of health. I've been telling myself, if I just knew I was okay, then I'd be able to focus on other people better instead of worrying about this nonsense. And that's not what I've needed. What I've needed is to find my hope in heaven. So that's been my excuse. What's yours? Think about it. The pressure can, can express itself in a number of different ways. For me, it's been anxiety lately. Maybe the trial you're enduring stirs up feelings of anger or lust or maybe even sorrow. As you're facing that trial, what's the thing that you're telling yourself, if I just had this, then I'd have the strength to endure it. Whatever it is, more than likely, James would tell you that you don't actually need that. What you need instead is to fix your eyes on heaven. And to understand that whatever good thing you're lacking right now, you don't need it in order to stay faithful. What you need instead is an understanding that as long as you may have to do without it, whatever it is, it's only going to be for a short time before this life is over. And when this life is over, God will fully supply your need. And He'll do it in the best and wisest way possible. If you can hold out that hope in front of you, that God will supply your need with whatever it is you lack when you die, if you can hold out that hope in front of you, then you can endure. Just like the, the father in the story at the beginning of today's message, you can keep digging and keep digging and keep digging. You can push yourself to go without for remarkable lengths of time, so long as you have hope that one day the wait will be over. And folks, before long, it will be over. Christ has already died. He's risen from the dead. The penalty for sin has been paid. We've received the spirit of adoption. There is now stored up for us in heaven an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. We might be empty now, but we will be full then. We might be poor now, but we will be rich then. It's guaranteed. And it won't be long now. We're drawing near every moment of every day. All that we have to do now, ladies and gentlemen, is wait. Let's pray.